from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You alone and not us. And so we give all the praise to you, Father. We give all the praise to you, Son and Holy Spirit. Would you help us now as we look into your word, trust you and submit to your rule. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm John Norris. I'm one of the elders here at Redeemer. And it's a pleasure to be um, opening God's word with you in a peculiar passage. Daniel 4, it's an unusual one. And we're going to see what God has to say to us from it. What if you came home from work someday or from the store and your flatmate has brought home a fish, a little goldfish in a bowl, and he points to the fish and says, see that fish right there? He's the new king. You'd say, well, does he do any tricks? Does he bite? No, he's a fish. Hmm. I think I'm going to start looking for a new apartment. Or what if, you, what if you went to a farm nearby your hometown, you start talking to a farmer, and he says, see that goat over there? He's in charge. <laughs> you mean the one that's eating grass right there? Did he tell you that? No, he can't talk. <laughs> I think I'll be in charge now. Animals ruling over people is as ridiculous as people pretending to be God. And yet it happens every single day, doesn't it? We play God. And in Daniel 4, God makes a man who acts like he's God into an animal until he humbles himself and stops trying to be what only God is. We're going to look quickly at how God humbled King Nebuchadnezzar that's what's happening in Daniel 4. And then we're going to look intently at the climax, which is verses 34 and 35, where Nebuchadnezzar confesses in humility to God. We're going to see who God is from these verses. We're going to see who we are in light of him, who we ought to be. And then we're going to look at why this story is in our Bibles. So that's the outline, if you're following along. In, in 930 B.C., the United Kingdom of Israel under Saul, David, and Solomon split into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Now, we just finished a series on Hosea, and in Hosea, God is promising the northern kingdom of Israel that Assyria is going to come in and exile them away to Assyria. And that happens in 722 BC. And then... 120 years later, King Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon comes to the southern kingdom of Judah and does the same thing. He deports the people of Judah to Babylon. It happens in two stages. So in 605 BC, he defeats Judah at Jerusalem and he makes them into a servant nation. So they're going to pay tribute to him. And he also take some of the royal family, some of the nobility, to train them in Babylon to become his advisors. And we know four of them. Daniel, 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And then later, while these four and others are in Babylon, the people who are still in Judah, they try to rebel against King Nebuchadnezzar, and he sends an army that destroys the walls of Jerusalem and destroys the temple of God. And he exiles many more of the people of Judah to Babylon. So in the first few chapters of Daniel, what we have is Nebuchadnezzar, that King Nebuchadnezzar, as the antagonist. That means he's the one that's causing the problems that are having to be overcome. So in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and he threatens to kill all of the advisors in Babylon unless they can tell him what the dream was in the first place and then interpret it. So you think you have an unreasonable boss? God gives Daniel a word. He tells him what the dream was and he gives him an interpretation. And so Nebuchadnezzar raises up Daniel to be over all the advisors in Babylon. And then in chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar sets up a golden image that he wants all of his government officials to bow down to. And he hears that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego won't do it because they worship the one true God. And he's filled with rage. He has them thrown into a fiery furnace, and God rescues them. And so he raises them up over the other advisors. So you may feel like you have a hard time getting a promotion at work. Try that one, you know? How did you get this position? Well, I was thrown into a furnace and I survived, so uh, that's why I'm here. That's what happened to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in chapter 3. In chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar is the one who's writing. Now, Daniel, the middle section of Daniel, is written in Aramaic. Most of the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, but this is in Aramaic. It's the language that the Babylonians spoke. And in chapter 4, we have Nebuchadnezzar speaking in the first person. If you have your Bible, you can see this. Daniel chapter 4, verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. And then he tells this story. He has a dream. He has a dream about a beautiful tree that grows up to heaven. And all the beasts of the earth and the birds of the air come, and they find shelter and food under its branches. And then, in his dream, Nebuchadnezzar hears an angel, the voice of an angel from heaven, saying, in verse 14, chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves, and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it, and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over him. And then the voice says that the purpose of this 
in verse 17 is to the end that the living may know that the most high rules the kingdoms of men and gives it to whom he will, and listen to this, and sets over it the lowliest of men. We're going to come back to that. But at this point, Nebuchadnezzar wakes up. He doesn't know what the dream means, but he knows that God has given Daniel the ability to interpret dreams. So he calls Daniel, and he tells him this dream. And Daniel says, O king, would that this was for your enemies. Would that this dream was for those who hate you. He says in verse 22, it is you, O king, who are the tree. You have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to the heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And then Daniel says, it is a decree of the most high which has come upon my lord the king that you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. And then Daniel begs Nebuchadnezzar to repent. He says in verse 27, therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Daniel's saying, this is a warning. Repent, repent. And maybe God will relent. Nebuchadnezzar has been warned. And then, 12 months pass. In verses 28 and 29, we see that a year's gone by, and Nebuchadnezzar is walking along the top of his palace, looking out over his city, Babylon. Now, Nebuchadnezzar has built Babylon into the greatest city on earth. So in the first list of the seven ancient wonders of the world, Nebuchadnezzar built two of them. The Greek uh, historian Herodotus, he lived just a little over 100 years later, said, Babylon surpasses in wonder any city in the known world. So he built a palace that was considered the greatest in the whole wide world that was massive. And his wall, so there were three walls around Babylon. There were two before he became king. He built a third that was 40 feet high And it was so wide on the top of this wall that historians say that they would have chariot races on the top. Four-horse chariots would race each other along the tops of the walls, and that a four-horse chariot could do a U-turn without stopping on top of these walls. That's before cranes existed. This is the city that that Nebuchadnezzar has built. He's looking at what is, at the time, the greatest city ever. And he says, verse 30, is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? And while the words were still in his mouth, a voice from heaven says, O King Nebuchadnezzar, 
To you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And with these words, the greatest king on earth loses his sanity. This is King Nebuchadnezzar who destroyed the walls of Jerusalem and destroyed completely the temple of Yahweh. And with a word, he is eating grass. He lives outside like an animal. He's covered with the dew. His hair becomes long, looks like bird feathers, and his nails become so long, they look like bird talons. He is now to other men what men who pretend to be in control are to God. He's an animal king. And then after seven periods of time, it was probably seven years, Nebuchadnezzar lifts his eyes to heaven and his reason returned And listen to the confession of his humility. This is the climax of the story. This is what it's leading to. It's his confession of humility in verses 34 and 35. I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? He's restored as king, and he says that even more greatness was added to him in his later years. God humbled Nebuchadnezzar. In verses 25 and 26, we've seen that God is trying to teach Nebuchadnezzar that the Most High rules and that he gives it to the lowliest of men. Nebuchadnezzar was proud. He built Babylon. And so he thought that he ruled his world and his life. And God won't tolerate that kind of pride. So he makes Nebuchadnezzar like an animal until he repents by confessing in true humility these four truths. We're going to go through these four things, see what they tell us about God and about us. Here they are. God's rule never ends. That's one. God's rule, his dominion never ends. Two. God has all of the value in the universe. He has it. He possesses all the value, all the worth in the universe. Three, God does whatever he wants. He does whatever he wants. Four, and God is accountable to no one but himself. His rule never ends. He has all the value, all the worth in the universe. He controls all things, and he is accountable to no one but himself. So now we're going to quickly look at these four things, see them in the text, 
See what they say about who God is, what pride is, what humility is. So let's start with the first one. The first humble confession is that God's rule is forever. Do you see that in verse 34? I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever for, because his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. God's rule is forever. Yours is not. You were born, you were born, and you will die. God never began, and he cannot die. Everyone in this room, everyone was once two cells big. Two cells. You existed inside someone else's body, depending on them for nine months, and you got your food from a tube. And your belly button is the proof of that. If you need, to, if you need reassurance that you are not self-made, look at your belly button. There was a time when you couldn't lift your head, you couldn't feed yourself, you couldn't clothe yourself, you couldn't clean yourself. So don't fool yourself into thinking you are self-made. Your dominion is not everlasting. But God's is, he never began because he has always been and he has always been ruling as the king of kings even before he made anything. But God also doesn't die. And someday you will. Someday, everyone will leave all their achievements, all their friends, all their family, everything they have built, and die. Nebuchadnezzar's coming to grips with this fact. When he lifts his eyes to heaven after these seven years, he has come to grips with the fact that his kingdom, his life's work, the greatness of Babylon won't last. Babylon covered most of Iraq, Kuwait, northern Saudi Arabia, eastern Turkey, and archaeologists have found bricks all over from Nebuchadnezzar's construction projects, the things that he built. And listen to what he would have printed, inscribed on the bricks that he built Babylon with. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, who provides for the temples of his gods, the eldest son of Nabopolassar, king of Babylon, am I. He put those on the bricks of his building projects because he wanted his work to last. But it can't. Only God's kingdom and work will. It's pride when we try to build a lasting kingdom apart from God. It's pride. And we all do it. How little we think about our deaths. Even though it's happened to everyone who's ever lived, except for two people, Enoch and Elijah. Everyone dies, and we don't think about it because we're proud. We want our dominion to last forever. 
but it won't. It's pride to ignore the fact that we're going to die and that everything we work for in this life that is not for God's kingdom and accomplished by him won't last. Only God's kingdom lasts. Only the work he does for his kingdom lasts. So humble yourself. Humility invests in a kingdom that never ends. Pride tries investing in mine, and it's foolish because it won't last. Humility invests in the kingdom that won't fail. The second truth Nebuchadnezzar confesses in humility is this. God has all the value, all the worth in the universe. Look at what he says in verse 35. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. What does that mean? Isaiah says something very, very similar. So you don't have to turn there, but this is Isaiah 40, verses 15 through 17. Just listen. Listen to what Isaiah said. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust of the scales. Behold, he takes up God takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. So Isaiah is saying, if you put on a scale, you put God on one side, and you put everyone else, all the nations, all the kingdoms, all the cultures, all the people on the other side, they don't move it. They're like dust on the scale and are accounted as less than nothing. Compared to God, everything else is a big fat zero. But we're not just saying that compared to God, everything else is nothing. We're not simply saying that God is more valuable and more worthy than everyone else in the universe, which is true. But we're saying that he has all the value in the universe. So here's an analogy. If I ask the question, how much light does the moon give compared to the sun? How much light does the moon give compared to the sun? Now, you might answer, well, the moon gives a little light, uh, gives, you know, some at night. Compared to the sun, it's not very much. Sun gives a lot of light, but the moon gives a little light. You could answer that way, but you'd be wrong. Because the right answer is that the moon gives no light. The moon gives zero light. How much light does the moon give compared to the sun? Any light that the moon gives is actually just a reflection of the sun's light. That's how it is in his creation. God has always possessed all the worth, all the value, all the goodness, all the glory in the universe. And if anything in creation has worth, value, glory, beauty, it's because it has come from God and is a reflection of his value, his worth, 
his beauty. To say it another way, things are valuable only in their relation to God. All your worth, all your value is borrowed. You are not the center of the universe. You're a moon. And God is the center of the universe. And all of your glory, beauty, wisdom, power, might is simply a reflection of his. That's why Nebuchadnezzar confesses that everyone counted up apart from God has no value. Just like the moon apart from the sun gives no light. So pride tries to get people to see that we have the value, that we possess the worth, that we're the ones who are the source of our beauty and goodness and strength. We want to be the center of the universe, don't we? Because we want to be praised. And if we're the source, then we deserve the praise. You were made to reflect God's worth. So the more you obscure God's value by trying to show yours to other people, you actually degrade the purpose for which you were made. You're like the moon. Does your Facebook, Instagram, your cell phone Does it draw attention to God? Is that what it exists for? It should. It should. It's easy to look at Nebuchadnezzar and think, man, that guy is so self-absorbed, and then walk outside and take a selfie. (gasps) Or think, who is this guy? This arrogant guy thinks he's the king of the world. And then we get in our car, and we start screaming at our kids or at the driver in front of us for going too slow because don't they know we're the center of the universe? That's pride. It's pride. You exist to reflect God's glory, his worth. He is the source, the origin of all value, all worth. So you cannot live life the way you're supposed to live until you are the moon and God is the sun at the center. The third truth Nebuchadnezzar confesses in verse 35 is that God does whatever he wants. Do you see that? He does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand. The only being who does whatever he wants all the time is God. All the time. That word will there, do you see he does according to his will? That word will is the word for want or wish. So whatever God wants, whatever he wishes, he does in heaven and on earth. And so God's never frustrated. There's nothing he wants to do that he can't do. He's in control. No one can stop him or, as the text says, stay his hand. Now, this is a humble confession from Nebuchadnezzar because proud people like you and me know instinctively that the one who's in control gets the credit. So we want to feel like we're in control. We want to feel like we're self-made people because we want praise from people. But there's just one problem. We aren't in control. We can't control the weather. 
We can't control the economy. We can't control our kids. Some of us, maybe most of us, can't control our own moods. We're not in control. God is. You're not sovereign. God is. And humility, therefore, is intentionally relying on God. Intentionally relying on God since he controls everything. So pray to him. That's what prayer is. It's intentionally relying on God. It doesn't matter if you can explain the sovereignty of God flawlessly and accurately. If you aren't prayerful, you don't believe that God is sovereign. If you don't come to him in prayer, you don't believe that he can do things whenever he wants. So pray to him. That's the application. Don't rely on your own strength, your own power, your own wisdom for anything. Humble yourself because God is good and he's in control of everything. So pray. No one can stop him. The fourth humble confession is that God is accountable to no one but himself. Do you see that at the very end of verse 35? None can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? God is in control, but he also doesn't answer to anyone for what he does. There's no higher court of appeals than God. No one has the right. So think about this. No one has the right to question his judgment. And remember this next time you're tempted to complain about what God has ordained for you. Cover your mouth. He is accountable to no one, not you, not anyone. He always does what is best. Whether you understand it or not, And he, not you, is the judge. And if he's the judge, then pride acts as though I'm the judge. Pride says, no, no, actually, I'm not accountable to anyone. And that's what Nebuchadnezzar did. Nebuchadnezzar didn't live in the fear of the judgment of God. That's why when Daniel explains to him his dream, he says, please repent, do righteousness, turn from your ways, show mercy to people. Because Nebuchadnezzar didn't believe that he was going to be judged. And so God graciously made him an animal until he learned the truth. God is the judge. He has no judge. He's governed only by his own desires. And they're always good, right, and just. Nebuchadnezzar says that in verse 37. He says, I praise and honor the king of heaven because all his works are right and his ways are just. So God always does what's right and just. That's amazingly good news. He is the standard. His heart, his righteousness, his justice is the standard by which we will be judged. That's good news. Unless you don't meet his standard of righteousness and goodness. You will be judged. And so humility knows this, and it does two things. It runs to God. 
It says, God, I am accountable to you. I am guilty. I don't match up to your standard of goodness and justice and righteousness. So please forgive me. And he will. And he'll do it through Jesus who took your place. That's what humility does. It runs to Jesus because it knows that God is the judge. And humility also, with the help of God's spirit, walks in a way that knows that we will give an account to God for our lives. We want to be covered in humility by the righteousness of Jesus. And we want to be filled with the fruit of righteousness on that day when we meet our judge face to face. Nebuchadnezzar's not in charge. That's what he's come to learn over seven years of insanity. God is. His rule is eternal. He has all the value in the universe. He's in control. And he's accountable to no one but himself. Now, when we read this passage, I think we're supposed to read it and we're supposed to say, there's a lesson for me to learn here about humility. There's a lesson for me about how God thinks about humility, about who he is, about how I'm supposed to be in response to that. But that's not the only reason that this story is in your Bible. The book of Daniel is about the rise and fall of kingdoms. So in chapter 5, Daniel's going to tell Nebuchadnezzar's son, you didn't learn the lesson that God taught your father, and now the kingdom is taken from you. And that night, Nebuchadnezzar's son is killed, and another empire invades Babylon and takes it over. And then, starting in chapter 7, and this goes all the way through the end of Daniel, God is going to show Daniel the future, and he's going to promise that multiple kingdoms are going to fall and rise, great kingdoms, terrible kingdoms, and he also promises that terrible things are going to happen to God's people in the midst of it all. So this here, in chapter 4, is to let his people know that he's in control. His kingdom doesn't end. When kingdoms rise and kingdoms, kingdoms fall, God's kingdom endures. And even when you are experiencing suffering and pain and hardship, God is ruling. He rules no matter what for his people's good, and so we should humble ourselves because he rules. But look what else we see in this story. A little earlier, I pointed this out in verse 17 of chapter 4. When Nebuchadnezzar first has his dream, he hears the voice of an angel say that he's going to be humbled, and it's to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and he gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. So God wants Nebuchadnezzar to know that he's in charge, that he makes kingdoms rise and fall, and that he sets over it the lowliest of men. And then, when you read Daniel 7, what happens? The father, the ancient of days, takes his eternal dominion, his eternal kingdom, and he gives it to someone. He gives it to someone like a son of man. That's what chapter 7 says. 
And then, 500 years later, Jesus shows up. And he says, that son of man who receives eternal dominion and rule is me. He tells people around him that they must consider him more valuable than everything else in the world, including their own lives, or they cannot be his disciples. Who talks like that? He is in complete control. Hebrews 1.3 says that he sustains the universe, everything, by the word of his power. That's Jesus. And Jesus tells us that he is judge of all in John 5. All judgment has been given to him. And it's because, it's because, as Daniel 4 says, he is the lowliest of men. You see, God hates pride, and those who walk in pride, he's able to humble, but he honors humility, which is why the text that we read for the confession, the text that you've got in your bulletin, Philippians 2, is so amazing because it is the polar opposite of Daniel 4, and it's the fulfillment of what God is promising in Daniel 4, 17 and Daniel 7. Jesus is equal with God. You can look at this if you've got your hand out. He's equal with God. He shares the Father's glory. But what does Philippians 2 say? He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself even further by becoming obedient to the point of death, a humiliating death on a cross. Now listen to this. Therefore, because of his humility, the lowest anyone could ever possibly go, from the highest of heights to the lowest of lows, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He was humble. He humbled himself by taking humanity onto himself and then humbled himself further by dying. And Philippians 2.9 says the reason God exalts him, therefore, is his humility. Now the divine son doesn't simply take on lowly humanity, which is a wonder of wonders. But because of his humility, he takes lowly humanity with him up into his glory. And now as the God-man, he receives the right of eternal dominion, authority, control, and judgment. Daniel 4, all the Bible is funneling us towards Jesus. So humble yourself before this humble king. He is Lord of all. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your son, the lowliest of men, 
who existed with you before time began and died to rescue proud, arrogant rebels like us. Jesus, you are worthy to receive all the honor. You are worthy to receive all the dominion and the worship. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.